God is good. It's so good to see you guys today and to be seen by you. We're continuing in our series in the Beatitudes after our um, brief um, detour last week with Mike with us. And a blessing it was, a real blessing at Community Group as well. And so um, for those who don't know, we've been going through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And today we are on the third one in our series, um, Blessed Are the Meek. Now, um, as we've seen with these Beatitudes, they are very much a contradiction in terms. And so, Blessed are those who mourn, and if we consider the word blessed to be happy, um, you'd say happy are the sad. That's a contradiction in terms. And again, we are confronted with a beatitude that really, especially in today's culture, seems to be very much a contradiction in terms. Um, meekness in our culture is very much seen as weakness. Um, there was an, uh, a gentleman called J. Upton Dixon, and he was known to be a fun-loving fellow. And he said he was writing a book entitled Cower Power. And this book was a book about meekness. In fact, it is said that he was going to establish a group called doormats, uh, uh, a society of meek individuals called doormats, and that um, was an acronym for um, Dependent Organization of Really Meek and Timid Souls, if there are no objections. Apparently, their motto was to be the meek shall inherit the earth if that's okay with everybody. And it's a, a humorous note, kind of recognizing the way in which people view meekness today. And meekness is, meekness is very much viewed as weakness. Is that really the case? Is that what Jesus is communicating? Is meekness weakness? Are we being called upon to be weak and in such find true godly happiness and blessing? Well, as we expand on our text, open the suitcase and unpack it, um, you'll be able to determine for yourself whether or not that's the case. So I'm going to read the Beatitudes again for us, um, and you can follow along if you have a Bible. I'm reading from the ESV. It's on screen as well. I'm reading from Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, and then I'll pray. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Um, <laughs> as we return to your word, every time we recognize that there is such a, an accessibility. There is such a way in which you have designed your word so that we can engage with it. As somebody once said, your word is shallow enough for a baby to swim in. And we see that, Lord, and we're grateful for that. And yet we also recognize that the other sentiment is true when they say it is also deep enough to drown an elephant. And so, Lord, our desire is that we would just plunge into your word and explore its depths and yet be able to apply its meaning in ways that really impact and change our lives. And as a result, the lives of those we come into contact with. Thank you, Lord, because truly you are faithful, you are true to yourself, and you are unlike anyone or anything. What a privilege it is to be in relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, just as a slight recap um, and a heads up for those who may be unaware, but we record all of our sermons and they're available on podcast via iTunes or sermon.net. Um, and so you can catch up on the series there. But we see in the Beatitudes this phrase repeated constantly, blessed, 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 blessed. And people have a lot of um, ideas as to blessings. Um, one of the chief ones being they want them. We want to be blessed. And so it's an encouragement that we see God doesn't, discount or discredit our desire for blessings. In fact, he's promised blessings to those who um, possess these virtues or characteristics. And so we see the experience of each one of these Beatitudes being something that's going to guarantee us the experience of blessing. Now, again, just to recap, we want to be blessed. What, what does that mean? And we'll be glad to hear that blessing means happy. And so the pursuit of happiness. Will Smith. Great film. Use it in school. And in fact, if you even watch the videos of the guy that the film's based on, you get a deeper insight. It's a great story. And we love it. It's because it's one of those feel-good films that, you know, it works out in the end, and the man ends up happy. <laughs> and that's what we want, right? We want to be happy. And that's also not a bad thing, as long as it's not an ultimate thing. Because when the Bible speaks of blessing equating to or meaning happiness, this is what it means. It's our pleasure knowing God is pleased with our embrace of his work. It's our pleasure knowing God is pleased with our embrace of his work. So who is the focus on primarily? God. And so it's that the happiness of being blessed is more about God than it is about us, which is how life is meant to be, right? Often we get it twisted, we get it the other way around. And we feel that it's all about us and less about God. God's an afterthought or a bolt on or an appendix. So this is what happiness is being spoken of by Jesus. And so Jesus says, blessed are the meek or happy are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now, as we begin to try and break down and understand what this word meek means, if you were to look at the definitions given in dictionaries, and I'll show you a few, you could be um, 
forgiven for thinking that the meekness being spoken of is just pathetic. Actually pathetic. So the Oxford Dictionary says meekness is to be quiet, gentle, and easily imposed on. Easily imposed on. Look at the examples they give. And this, and this is what actually reinforces the sense of just how poorly meekness is viewed. It's, it's, it's how they use the word in context. She brought her meek little husband along. <laughs> Listen. Listen to the Cambridge. It's to be quiet, gentle, and not willing to argue or express your opinions in a forceful way. Now, again, I'm just like, mm, okay, maybe this is a little bit closer, but not being willing to argue or express your opinions in a forceful way. Okay, we, we may not want to be forceful, but sometimes we need to be assertive and it almost suggests that you can't even be that. This is the um, American Merriam-Webster dictionary. Deficient in spirit and courage. Who wants to be that? And be called blessed. Deficient in spirit. And it's not saying spirit as in the inner being, but attitude. It's like gumption. And courage. Not violent or strong. And yet there are times when we have to be violent and we have to be strong. So doesn't that then conflict with our need to be meek? Amen. Even the much used and loved dictionary.com says meekness is to be humbly patient or docile. Again, there's this kind of sense of just pathetic helplessness where you just lie down and take whatever's coming to you. It, it goes on to say to be overly submissive or compliant, spiritless. And so again, if we kind of take in these definitions of meekness, it's not something that we would aspire to. It's not something we would even really be wanting to pray about. Lord, make me meek. <laughs> Thankfully, this isn't the kind of meekness that the Bible is talking about. And in fact, we see that in more modern translations, the word meek is used less often and that partly because of the way in which the word is viewed in our life and times. And so as translators are giving um, newer translations in which they've, they're benefiting from the further ongoing studies of, of the scriptural texts, and they're now wanting to communicate that to a, a, a new generation in ways that are meaningful and yet faithful, sometimes they have to choose words different to ones that have been chosen previously, simply because the, the original word, such as meekness, has lost the same sense of meaning it once had. And rather than cause confusion, they will use a different word. We see this in Galatians 5.23. The word there as, as being an expression of the fruit of the Spirit in the ESV is gentleness, whereas in the authorized standard version, it's meekness. And we see that the word meek and the, the translation from which that's taken, or the word from which the translation is taken, is used in different ways throughout Scripture. Humble, gentle, forgiving, content are all words used synonymously for the same one Greek word from which we get meek. Here we see meekness being spoken of as it relates to Jesus. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Or as the authorized standard version says, I am meek and lowly in heart. And so, meekness is not the weakness suggested by the modern use of the word and the modern understanding of the word. There is no way that we could suggest that as we look at Galatians 5.23 and it speaks of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that that could, that could mean weakness in the way that we understand it. That would be an absolute madness. Because the whole, think about it, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, the all-powerful Spirit of God. How can he possess in any way any weakness? Even when we think about it in the context of Jesus. Jesus speaking of the fact that he is gentle or meek and lowly in heart. And yet through Christ, all things that exist were created. He is not lacking in any strength. Or power in any sense. And so we begin to appreciate that actually the writers of scripture and those who first received it, they more understood meekness as submitted strength. Strength under submission or moderated might or regulated rights. And so it's not that the person doesn't have strength, doesn't have power, doesn't have authority even, doesn't have rights. But it's those things under restraint, under control, under submission. In fact, the, um, there's, a, there's a Latin word that was used um, in the translation of the, the, in the Latin translations of the scriptures um, that relates to the word meek. And it's, the word is mansutis, which means used to the hand. Used to the hand. And it's this sense of an individual being used to being in hand. Um... It's probably more helpful to think of it in terms of a horse and the taming of a horse. Now, we know that horses are powerful beings, right? And wild horses, I mean, some would say they're uncontrollable. When you have all of that power expressed without restraint, no one's going to be quick to jump on a wild horse. It doesn't matter what kind of cowboy you think you are. You're going to want to see that horse tamed. Otherwise, you will be in fear of your life. You know, you see, you watch those old films and you just see them jump bare back onto the horse and grab the mane and ride with the wind. Nobody's going to jump on a wild horse quickly. But once that horse has been brought into hand. It hasn't lost any of its power. It hasn't lost any of its strength. But that strength is now regulated, submitted, controlled. And that's the picture that we see of meekness. It's a controlled strength. It's a submitted strength. And it's a similar sense to the picture we see painted here in James 3. The whole context of this chapter is extremely helpful and we're not going to get an opportunity to go into it all today. But consider this. James says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. And when it says perfect, it doesn't mean without sin, but it means um, complete, mature, whole. Is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body? And so there's an association between being able to control our words 
and that actually resulting in us being better able to control our actions. And this is, in many ways, a picture of meekness. And so, meekness is a, a controlled strength. Meekness is a, a submission of ourselves to a higher principle. When we think about it in those terms, as much as it's not weakness, it's still challenging. Somebody said, I can't remember who it is, um, I think it might have been the fanatic, formerly of the cross movement, um, in a song he said, if you think that meek is being weak, then you just try and be meek for a week. And there's this sense that, you know what, meekness isn't weakness, but it's not easy to, to be in a place where your strength, your power, even your rights are restrained in their expression. As we look at James 1, we see a few verses here that give us a picture of meekness in action. Notice, my, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to, what does that say? Slow to, slow to, all right. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So in this we see that we are being instructed as, as individuals to, not to be quick to speak, not to be quick to anger, but actually we're to be quick to hear, to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. It goes on to say, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And so in this, these two sections, we see two contrasts. We see the contrast between what we could do versus what we ought to do Likewise being contrasted, what we could do with what we ought to do and how we ought to do it. So, we could be quick to speak. And actually, we often are quick to speak. How often do we find ourselves finishing someone else's sentence before they've even been able to finish it themselves? How often do we find ourselves in a place where we're quick to offer opinion on something before we've heard both sides of the story? In our social media culture where everyone's given license to comment on everything and are encouraged to do so, so often we are motivated to respond before we've even reflected. They say that there is a difference between response and reaction. Response is a, 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 I was going to say a response, but they say you're not supposed to use the same word when given the meaning of the word. But there's this sense of being able to express yourself with reflection. Reaction is an unreflected response. And this is what we're being challenged to here. Slow down. Don't be so fast, as my grandma used to say to me. Let's take time to take in. And not just in such a way that we will be slow to comment 
and express our opinion, but actually we would be slow to express our attitudes and emotions, even as it relates to anger. Very often people get in situations, most often people get in situations of expressing anger because they feel they are right and it needs to be heard. That's where we find ourselves. And yet the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So us being quick to vent ourselves, vent our opinion, vent our emotions is not actually expressing the righteousness of God. In fact, when we look at the next verse, it associates the negative of the previous as being filthiness and rampant wickedness. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now that sounds cold. That sounds like an overreaction. But if we are expressing ourselves and our opinions and our anger rapidly without reflection to the extent that it does not produce or reflect the righteousness of God. If it's not righteous, it's not right. And if it's not righteous, James has every right to call it filthiness and wickedness. How often do we see ourselves in that light? How often do we see ourselves, oh, I know I spoke out of turn. I just made a mistake. When really we should be saying I was, it was filthy and wicked what I done. We don't appreciate and see the sinfulness of sin. We compare ourselves with others and feel like we're, we're all right. But Sin isn't how we rate when compared with others. It's how we rate when compared with God. And so we're to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. Now, again, the use of that word. We know that God don't mess about when he uses words, right? Every word is intentional. That's why we... Give ourselves to study the Word of God. Study it. Not just casually read it, gloss over it, but study it. Because God's Word is spirit and it's life. Every word is, is full of power and purpose. And as we see meekness used here, it's used in the sense that we've looked at it. Okay, so you may feel angry. You may feel that you, you've got to tell someone something. You, your opinion has to be heard. And you may be right, but be meek. Hold it down. Just because you have an opinion, you don't have to express it. Just because you're right, you don't have to enforce it. Be meek. And so the, the, the use of meekness actually suggests that there may well be a sense in which our view, the cause for our anger or our desire to speak quickly may be a genuine one. But hold your strength. Hold your right. And receive the word. I think for me this is so tremendous in the way in which it helps us to not just be challenged to be meek, but also to grow in meekness. Because it says, receive with meekness the implanted word. What's going to help us be meek if it's not the word of God? And so often when we find ourselves in situation where, situations that motivate a, a, a raw and rapid response from us, an impulsive and impetuous response from us. Often we find ourselves in a place where we're not actually filtering that through the word. We're not, we're not filtering that emotion and that reaction that we want to give in light of Christ who is the living word. And so, rather than consider the old cliche, what would Jesus do? 
WWJD, wristbands, t-shirts. What would Jesus do? You know, you know that there are the um, there are those individuals. I was going to use a, a disparaging term, but I won't. There are those individuals who, as believers, we find fault with everything, right? We find godly. That's not even. What would Jesus do? You see, this is just being promoted and portrayed as saved. All you have to do is what Jesus done, but you don't have to do Jesus. It's just like, you have to take it that far. Okay. It can be misconstrued. It can be misunderstood. But for those who are applying it rightly, it can be a helpful consideration. And so sometimes we need to stop and ask ourselves, what would Jesus do in a given situation? The Bible says that Jesus was rebuked and he was abused and yet he did not retaliate. He had the right to. And we think about, okay, well, in that situation, what would Jesus do? Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I think we have to go a step beyond that and not just think about what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? Because that's foundational to who we are. What did Jesus do for you in the light of your sin? What did Jesus do for you in the light of your rampant filthiness and wickedness? Even in light of that, Jesus gave his very life in your place, taking the penalty of your sin upon himself. The punishment that should have come to you and to me, Jesus took it. He received it. Willingly, voluntarily, in order that we might be forgiven. See, it's not just enough to, to do what Jesus done. But we have to appreciate what he done as it relates to us personally. Jesus gave up his rights. Even in becoming a man, Philippians 2 tells us that he, he, he emptied himself of his glory. He laid aside, laid aside any um, vestiges of his status. When Jesus came and walked as a man, he looked like any other man. And apart from a brief moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, he didn't glow in the dark. Apart from that brief moment. He, light, he laid aside, he set aside the full expression of his glory in order to become a man. And you would think that was enough. And yet he went on to death, even the brutal, shameful death of the cross. Yes, for me and for you. And so, when we are getting ready to draw our sword on someone and take them out with the power of our rights, Let's just stop and think for a minute. Is this what meekness looks like? Is this my strength under control, submitted to Christ? Is this my, my power being put aside for the glory of Christ and for the good of all? You see, meekness fundamentally becomes us choosing not to do what we have the right to do. Us choosing not to do what we have the right to. And that is an intense challenge. 
few examples to consider. In Acts 23, we see the Apostle Paul standing before the high priest. And he's in a situation where he's being brought up on trial. And the high priest, Ananias, he commands that the Apostle Paul be struck. And so Paul responds, may God strike you. And then they turn to him and say, would you declare that the, the high priest of God be struck? And even though Paul was in the right for what he said, because he, they commanded that he, they would, he would be beaten, even though it was against the law of God for him in that situation. Paul's response was this, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so even though the high priest was wrong and Paul was right, he submitted himself to the word of God. And he took the wrong in order to be faithful to the Lord rather than just being right in the moment. We look at Genesis and Lot. Genesis and Lot. Abraham and Lot in the book of Genesis. And we see Abraham and Lot have been traveling and they've got to a point where they can't continue any further because they've outgrown each other's company. And so Abraham, the older, Abraham is, is Lot's uncle. He's an he's a elder. He says to Lot, look, don't let there be any strife between us, between your men and my men, because we're family. And the whole of the land is before us. So here's what you do. You go your way. If you want to take the left, I'll take the right. And if you want to take the right, I'll take the left. Whatever you want, just go and have it. It's okay. And so verse 10, Lot lifts up his eyes and he sees the Jordan Valley. Now even up until the time of Christ, the, the area of Jordan was, was kind of like the Miami of Israel. It was a lush place, wonderful climate, beautiful environment. It was a socially desirable place to be. And so he looks and he sees the Jordan Valley. It was well watered. It says it was like the garden of the Lord, you know. And so Lot goes and he takes the land. And you think to yourself, but Abraham, come on. You're the elder. You're the uncle. I mean, I use the term uncle and some of us get flashbacks to our culture and how we have to refer to uh, our elders as uncles even and aunts when they're not. And there's that moment in your youth when you wonder, why am I calling this person uncle and aunt when they are actually not related to me? Abraham was his literal uncle. And yet, he deferred to Lot, the younger, when he had the right to say to him, all right, Lot, look, I'm going over here. You take the dregs and it's all good. He had the right to say that. But we see a, a meekness in Abraham, even in that moment, was where he regulated his rights. And what a beautiful picture that is. We read of Moses in Numbers. Moses is declared as being the most meek of all people on the face of the earth at the time. It could be said that Moses was the most meek of all people apart from Christ, of whom they get no meeker. And so, in this instance, Moses' meekness is being declared because Aaron and Miriam have been talking about him. They've been, you know, you know when you feel like your ears are burning? You know, those instances when you kind of walk into a space and the conversation stops and you feel like it was about you. Or you know something comes back to you because it always does, right? Such and such was carrying your name. This wasn't assumed or, suspicion, or, or, or suspected on Moses' part. It was blatant. 
Aaron and Miriam were talking Moses' name. Ah, he thinks he's better than everyone else. Are we not like Moses? And yet, God himself has to pull them up. And he calls them before him. And he strikes Miriam with leprosy for talking ill of his servant. Now, let's just remember, God is the same. This is a side note. Yesterday, today, and forever, yeah? All right? God is, God is the same yesterday, today, and he's the same God. We sing the song, right? He's the same God. We need to thank God for Jesus. Because there will be a certain amount of leprosy. <laughs> Some salt statues. Like Lot's wife. Listen, you walk into church and you just see one salt statue at the door. <laughs> Listen. God may not express himself in the same way because he expressed his vengeance upon Christ, but he still has the same feelings towards these things. God doesn't delight. He doesn't look kindly when we are speaking ill of his servants. And I'm not just talking about us as elders, which, I mean, it happens. It's part of the job description. We understand that. But we're not just the only ones who are his servants. Each of us, as God's people, are his servants. So when you feel filled with anger and dis frustration and discontent and you know better and you want to put your mouth on somebody, just remember Miriam <laughs> and the leprosy. And yet, even in that situation, when obviously God acted righteously, because that's all he does, act righteously, and he smote her. That's an appropriate word, I think. Smote. Smote Miriam with, with leprosy. What does Moses do? He appeals on her behalf. Lord, please heal her. The one who's been spoken against and insulted and abused and disrespected is the very one to call on God for her healing. And so we see such meekness in that. And so this is what, what meekness looks like, the, the control of our strength. Now, what meekness doesn't look like is when we have an opinion and we feel we have to express it. Because we have an opinion, it doesn't mean we have to express it. Meekness doesn't look like I'm right and it has to be known. You know when you're in conversation and you, you have to have the last word? And, and, and uh, <laughs> you in, and, you, and you have to have the last word? And it can be a very simple matter, a very, you know, non-consequential issue. But you have to have the last word. You know, the, 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 the text has been sent. And anyhow a response comes in, another text has to be sent. <laughs> you know that you're lacking in meekness when you are unwilling to be flexible or compromise. Well, as far as I see it, I'm right, and that's the right way to do it. And so there's no flexibility, there's no compromise here. Or when you're critical and judgmental and filled with a, a toxic attitude towards others. Always having to find fault. Always having to pick out the, the wrong. Not just recognize it, but also state it. Yeah. 
You know you're not meek when you're in a situation where you know that you can do better than your leaders. Uh, let's, let's, or your boss. Whoever's over you. And as a result, you refuse to submit or even support them in what they're doing. Some people call that, call that leading up, I think is the phrase. When you might have a new boss and they're, fine, they're trying to find their feet and they really don't know what they're doing and you've been there and you're established and you're able to actually come alongside and support them and actually lead them as they lead from their position. But you're able to do it in such a way that you're not dictating and domineering over them. But it's supportive, encouraging. The ones who are often able to lead up in the most effective ways have learned to present their leadership in the way of questions. You know, even as a child, Jesus was recognized to have been an outstanding individual simply by the questions that he asked, as it says in Luke. It says, Jesus was found in the temple, reasoning with the leaders, and they were astounded at the questions that he asked. You know that you're lacking in meekness when you have an inability to serve, a lack of commitment to support because you know better. And the thing is, you may well know better, but you refuse to get involved. You stand aloof and look down your nose critically in judgment because they don't know like you know. That's not meekness. You know that you're lacking in meekness when you're unwilling to see others succeed in something that you could succeed in. That should be me. I, I should be doing that. Furthermore, I was the one who, whatever, set that up, provided the resources. I mean, we look at David. David said, Lord, I'm going to build you a house. And the Lord said to David... That's not your portion, David. But this is what you're going to do. You're going to amass all of the resources and bring everything together in order that your son will build me a house. Now, you imagine if David didn't have any meekness in him. My son. Uh, you know what? Just forget that idea, Lord, isn't it? <laughs> Let's not worry about it. I mean, all right, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. But not like that. I'm going to watch my son come and build your house after I have done all the work. But no, he was meek. And he was happy to see Solomon succeed in that. Because he didn't have to be the successful one and known for that in that instance. We know that we're lacking in meekness when we become unteachable. When we know better and we've got no openness to even being wrong or even learning more, which again is why we see this sentiment expressed, receive with meekness the implanted word. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how much study of scripture you've done. You can never know enough. And that's just a fact of life. I mean, what, even you, you can apply that outside of scripture. And so the reality is that when we are teachable, we are expressing uh, 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 a healthy sense of meekness. And that doesn't mean, okay, we're open to be taught, and then when somebody tells us something, 
Yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah, I already know that. You don't have to tell me that because I already know that. We're willing to hear, but as soon as we hear something we already know, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. It's all right. You don't need to tell me. It's all right. I know that already. So we know already. Don't say anything, innit? Just, just agree. They tell you something you already know, you just say, yeah, that's, I agree with that. Amen. That's it. Often our impatience and outbursts of anger can be evidence of our lack of meekness. And so, let me give you five things, five highlights to help develop a healthy sense of meekness. First of all, walk in daily fellowship with Jesus. So, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you. A yoke was a piece of wood that was used to join two animals together as they were doing the work of plowing a field. And so it was that piece of wood that went across the neck and shoulders of one animal and, then a, and it kept them together in line, in pace, walking together, working together in tandem, in harmony. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, come into line with me and stay at my pace. Don't fall behind. Don't run ahead. Walk with me. And learn from me. And what they would do is, as they had a, a, a new animal that they were introducing into the, the, to the work of plowing, they would yoke the animal, join the animal to an experienced one. Because the experienced one was already used to the pace and the, the roots and the, the direction and the instructions. And the new animal was unsure and uncertain, and, but was steadied by the mature one. So Jesus is saying, look, Come into line with me, stay by my side, walk and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And this is the beautiful thing, because when we, when we walk with Jesus, it is actually a relief. It actually results in such peace. It actually gives opportunity for the fullness of God's Spirit to just flow through our lives. It really simplifies things. It takes a lot of the complications out of life. And I'm not saying it's easy. But it is really a place of rest. Two, remember how much you've been forgiven. In 2 Peter 1 verse 9, it lists a, a, a number of qualities or characteristics um, in the previous verses. And in light of that, it says, if you've not, and you can look at the, the context um, in your own time, if you lack any of these, um, at one point it says, and add to your knowledge self-control. And again, we see this combination of qualities that present a picture of meekness. Okay, so you know stuff, but be self-controlled with it. But he goes on to say, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So often we can get so self-righteous that we forget that righteousness is given as a gift by Jesus. We can be so full of our own goodness that we forget that that doesn't mean anything before God. That actually we came poor in spirit, recognizing that we have nothing to offer. And we came in mourning over our sinfulness because we recognized just how defiant it and rebellious against the Lord it is and, 
and how corrupting it is to our lives. And so having that in mind, we are able to cultivate a sense of meekness, remembering how much we've been forgiven. Make friends with meek people. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25. Consistently throughout Scripture, we are challenged to choose our friends wisely. Now, some of us will take that as a license to not talk to certain people. I'm just not going to talk to that person again because you see the way they just beat their chest and express their anger as our brother and sister, you know. That's not what it's saying. It doesn't mean be rude, unsociable, unconcerned about others. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. But we understand that there's a difference between what it looks like to, to know someone and to be sociable and concerned for them and that and having someone as a friend. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, it says, Bad company corrupts good living. And so we need to be mindful. Number four, discern God's hand in the work of your enemies. So Jesus was being crucified having been betrayed, having been lied upon, having been falsely accused and unjustly tried. And even as he looks at Judas, Peter, he doesn't see them and have an issue with them, but he recognizes that even in all of the negative ills he's experiencing, that God in his sovereignty is at work. And so often when we want to claim our rights and express our opinions and even our frustrations and anger, we are trying to fight against flesh and blood. When the Bible says we don't fight against flesh and blood, but there's powers and principalities. And so let's just take a step back and recognize that there are forces at work beyond the obvious in this situation. And God is in control of them all. You look at Job. Job didn't just experience affliction because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But Job was offered to Satan by God. <laughs> Somebody said, God, if that's how you treat your friends, no wonder you've got so few. He offered Job to Satan. Have you considered Job? And the beauty of it is this, that Job's experience was as a result of his maturity and not because of his immaturity or his lack or his sinfulness. God was so convinced and so celebrating Job's embrace of God's work in his life that he said, cool, test Job. That's my guy right there. It's all right. Go for it. Because God had done a work in Job's life. And it's not to say that there wasn't more for Job to learn. And you read the book of Job and you see that he learned much through the experience. But he was put into that place in the first place because God was celebrating his work in Job's life and the maturity that Job has. You know, sometimes you go through hardships in life and you feel like, God, do you love me? I look at the life of Job and I feel like God doesn't allow the, the, his immature children to go through certain things. Because he knows they're just going to throw their toys out of the pram and shake. And, and so, you know what? It may be more of a testimony to your maturity in Christ. That you're going through certain things. Because God is confident of his work in you. Five, anticipate all that God has promised. 
one of the drawbacks of wanting to be meekness is feeling like we're going to lose out. I'm right and you need to know it. And if I don't let you know, then I won't be vindicated and you won't learn the lesson and then it's all, all gone bad. When we trust that God will fulfill his purpose and we don't have to, we're able to fall back in faith. We're able to step back and trust that we're not going to lose out. God is faithful to his word. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. And it's all right. Furthermore, I know this because at the end, I'm going to inherit the earth. There's nothing that I forego in, in, in an effort to be meek. There's nothing that I step back from, that I defer, that I won't experience the reward and blessing of. You see, meekness is us relinquishing control over to the sovereign God in faith. Trusting that God is true to his word and he is going to do what he said. You ain't going to miss out if you walk in meekness. You're going to inherit the whole earth. And so to conclude... A.W. Tozer said this, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be. But paradoxically or in contradiction, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. And so the Lord says, the meek shall inherit the earth. There is none who was more meek than Jesus. Who as he was nailed to the cross. Cried out father forgive them. For they don't know what they do. And this is what Jesus done. And this is his heart towards you and towards me. And towards all of our. Years of sinning. And towards every sin that we will even go on to commit. Even though he above all people has the right to call down fire from heaven on us. Where we sit. Where we stand. Through the shedding of his blood on our behalf. He continues to cry out to the father in heaven. Forgive them. But they don't know what they do. This is meekness. This is the meekness that we're called to. It is a work of God's grace. A work of his spirit. And. There is a sense of. Weakness in it. There is a willingness to choose to make ourselves vulnerable. In the same way that Christ did. In order that he might be displayed as beautiful and God glorified and it be for the greater good of all. Amen. I'm going to invite the team back up. Let's stand as we pray. Father God, we recognize that this isn't something that we can achieve in and of ourselves. Even the least impulsive among us are given to thoughts that are not meek. Attitudes, resentment, bitterness that we harbor even in our own passive aggressive ways. 
because we lack meekness as a fundamental aspect of our character. And yet we thank you, Lord, that you died for us, even in such an ultimate expression of meekness. And having died for us, you have given us your spirit who fills us with this virtue that we do not have of ourselves. Our lack of it displays our need for you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to meet every single one of our needs. So, Lord, I ask today that you would forgive us. Forgive us for our lack of meekness. Forgive us for our impulsive, unrestrained expressions of our rightness. Work in us, Lord, we pray. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.